guys a story. This is a true story. Uh, if you were here in the very early days of Restoration, hopefully you will remember it. If you're visiting with us, this will be new to you. But before Restoration was even a church, you know, we launched in 2010. There was a time when the only thing happening in these theaters was, was movies. Uh, before that, we had to figure out what restoration was going to be like. In the same way we're praying and planning for the next five years as we approach our six-year anniversary, we are now at this place, we were at the place where we were having to figure out what the first five years would look like. And so before we even launched, um, I was actually asked to share a little bit about our, our plan, our vision, and our values for how we were going to try to birth a new church in the city of Port Orange. My wife and I and one child at the time were living in New Orleans, and we, we moved here and plugged in immediately. And I shared these, some of these concepts at a meeting with a bunch of other pastors from all over the east coast of Florida. And I gave a pretty detailed presentation of of what we were attempting to do, the who's, the what's, the when's, the where's, and the why's. But everything revolved around the third of our five values. So if you are new to restoration or maybe you've been here for a while and, and you, you love our church or really appreciate our church, you should know that the substance of what you appreciate is rooted in a five-value system, things that we really feel like are absolutely uh, critical, non-negotiable to the work of God at our church. And the one that we've been talking about over these past couple of weeks is this idea of, of mission. It's our third value or the concept of being sent. And what that means is because we believe Jesus was sent for us, the future of the church in the world, especially in North America, is not in us demanding people come here, although we want to have that rhythm. We want to invest and invite in people's lives. The future of the church is in us going to the places where people that do not know or love God are. That's how it happened with God. God didn't invite us into heaven, although he did, sort of. What he did is he sent his son to give us the personal invitation to know him permanently and his son and, and the great promise of heaven. And so when I say mission, what I mean, that you'll see the connection to love here momentarily. To be clear, by mission, we often have a, a term or an imagination of what this looks like in our head. What we mean is that mission, although it can include going someplace for a couple of weeks out of the year, very important, Genuine Christian mission means that we have to be a people all of the time, 24-7, and our churches are comprised of people who love God. So by mission, what we mean is we have to be a church that values people so deeply on a consistent basis that we are willing to live for them and love them by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ through our words and our deeds. It's not just something we do on occasion. It's something that should be the regular DNA of the way we conduct ourselves. And so it has always been our prayer as a church that God would bless our efforts in this area by using us to help every person in our lives that he's put in our lives to take their next steps with Jesus. So during my presentation, um, it's, it's always interesting when you speak to a room, and I've done it for a very long time in various sizes all around the country, some, some overseas stuff. You start getting a gauge for how people are picking up I like to say they're picking up what you're putting down. And so there was this one guy in the room who was not picking up anything that I was putting down. Everybody else was like shaking their head like that old Taco Bell dog commercial. I don't know if you've seen that. They were like bobbing along and you know it's all good. But there was one guy, first it's a scowl, there's a body posture. And so I'm really big on dialogue. And, you know, throughout points of my talk, I would stop and periodically ask people what they thought. And so uh, this one guy just straight up said, he, he was kind of adversarial. It's actually very adversarial. Uh, and he, he had said to me when I had asked him about the concept, the central nature of mission in the church, he said that he, he thought that I had made a grave mistake in this and that he did not believe that mission, like we were talking about it, was it, it was a part of the church, but not, a, not central to the mission of the church. And so in the interest of dialogue, I had asked him, 
okay, so if mission isn't it, you know, if, if the kind of helping people know and grow in Jesus isn't it, then, then what is it? Because we have to have some kind of flag in the hill that we're migrating towards. And he, he said, um, I'm not joking, he said, well, I'm not exactly sure what it is, but if I had to say something, he said, I would have to say the central mission of the church is to give glory to God. Now, we have talked extensively about the glory of God. We have a, a whole sermons on it. And uh, this is a term that is often a catch-all term in the Christian faith. It tends to have like a nebulous uh, nature to it. We say live for the glory of God, but then we don't really know what that looks like at Tuesday at 10 a.m. when we're in our offices or, you know, on our, on our workplace. And so uh, this is a word that often has a very abstract meaning in the Christian world. And so in our church, we try to bring a very clear meaning to it because it's not an abstract term. There's a very pointed expression of what it means to bring glory to God in our lives. And so after bantering back and forth a little bit, I explained why we believed a church committed to Jesus' mission is the clearest expression of what it means to give glory to God. Because giving glory to God in Scripture, the, the literal definition that is you can find, is it means to give like a high praise or to honor God in your life. And the, the kind of slang term we use to describe this is that it means that we as God's people, we live in a way as if God is weighty or significant in our lives. To give glory to God means he's not an afterthought, He's not a hobby. He's not somebody we get around to. It means at the center of our being, we prescribe a great value, worth, honor, and praise to who God is. That is what it means to glorify God. And when you start to frame that, it actually gives us some touch points to live our lives in light of. And I connected these two dots by saying, in Scripture, there are lots of ways people glorify God, but it's pretty clear that the way God most enjoys being glorified is when people look to his son, recognize who he is, the sacrifice he has made for them, they commit their lives to him, and then they attempt to follow him for all of their days. In other words, they become a disciple and try to grow as a disciple. The best way to glorify God in our lives is to love God with heart, soul, and mind, what we talked about last week, and to pursue him with our heart, soul, and minds, to live as deeply devoted disciples. And that's why I confidently, to this day, wholeheartedly agree that the central nature of God's church is wrapped up in those great commandments that we talked about last week, loving God and loving neighbor. Um, I, I shared this this morning with our worship team in our pre-prayer time before we got in here. These past two weeks, uh, I've been using a little bit of a different personal devotional tool in my life. It's a great app called the Bible app. I've mentioned it here before. Uh, it's just wonderful the things you can actually use in that app, and it's totally free. But I started following their devotional pattern, and uh, it was, I think, completely providential that over these last two weeks, all the verses were revolving around love. You know, that to me is like not coincidental in any sense. And so this morning, I'm kind of big on not necessarily consuming a ton of information and glossing over it. I think it's better for us to take certain truths and meditate on them over certain periods of time. Thus, the fact that we've been dialoguing about this word love over the past month. The, the verse today was uh, from Galatians 6. And it was a verse that I had read before, but it actually had an impact that it never had on me before. Last week we talked about Jesus saying, like, the law and the prophets hang on these two commands, to love God and neighbor as self. And Paul himself says that the law itself is summarized in loving neighbor as self, right? So no matter where you go, there's like a forced theme throughout the New Testament that the central purpose of God's people is to love God deeply and others in the same vein. Bone and sinew, inseparable. This is why I say mission is important. And for God to get that kind of glory, 
every Christian in the church has to recognize that we've been given this specific task and privilege of sharing truth and grace with other people in our lives. We have to own this truth. We can't just experience it. We have to be willing to help others experience the love that Jesus has has shown us. And God has put people in every one of our lives that are not in any other body, any other, anybody else's lives. There are people in my life that are not in yours and yours that are not in mine. God has put you there for a reason. You have a purpose. You know, traditionally the church has called this evangelism. We try to bring some body to that word. What I would say is no matter who you are dealing with, no matter what context it is, God wants you to be Jesus for that person, to that person. So throughout history, I'll say this before we jump into the the real meat of where we're going today. Throughout history, many a church has lived and died based on their desire to be obedient to the most basic of commands that Jesus has given us. What Paul echoes in the book of Philippians and what we see validated again in the book of Ephesians. He tells us that we have to reach out to people. That our job, in the same way God stretched his hand into earth through Christ... God expects us to stretch our hands into the worlds that he has put before us to be the same kind of hope and faith and truth and love and peace to the people who need it. In other words, we're here to make disciples and to to help deeply commit or recommit those of us who are already following Jesus to a, a, a greater love for Jesus. So remaining committed to and spiritually vitally in our desire to do this can, can be a battle. And that's what we've been talking about. The reality of God saying love people, but the challenges of what that means in our lives. That's been the whole month. But I will tell you, it's one that is worth talking about regularly. And it is one of those life rhythms worth fighting for. It's one of those places where we see this is a hill that we'll die on. Because if we don't, we'll die a different death. A slow dehydration of what it means to know God well and to love others in light of it. And Jesus says, Paul echoes, again, in both Philippians and Ephesians, the Old Testament communicates this. No matter where you go, what you will find is that the love relationship God shows us, the evidence of it, one of the great ones, is that there is a perpetuation of that love in the life of other people. And so my hope as individuals and a church body is that we remain passionately committed to this idea, which is a truth that God has defined society under for all of our days. So over the past weeks, we've been talking about love from Philippians and other Bible passages. I want to summarize this because this is how we'll wrap up this section. Experiencing the love of God should cause us to be a people defined by love. And today we wrap up this section by looking at what it means to be a pleasant aroma in God's, God's life. And then we look at three practical ideas, rhythms, if you will, for how we can become a people that do this. We want to migrate from the discussion of truth the discussion of love, to the practical application of what it looks like when we leave this room. And we've done a good deal of that in the past, but today I'm going to issue you with three very pointed challenges. They are evaluation points that help us to understand in our faith uh, how we're living in light of this. So the simple question I ask you is how, how do you smell to God? This is the question that we have in the book of Ephesians. How is it... Did you hear that? Somebody's iPhone is up here, and it just gave me a definition of what the Holy Spirit is. Siri did. (laughs) Uh, That's kind of really funny. I didn't need that definition. I'm telling you now. I already know this, but but uh, that's I don't know what that's about. Siri just told me what the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit is. So I don't even know I went to seminary. I mean, what was the point? (laughs) That's a, that is almost 20 years of pastor, and that's a first for me, for sure. So, all right, I'm going to try to rein this back in, right? <clears throat> so how, the question I want to ask is how, how you smell to God. 
And what I want us to think about as we move forward here is how we, uh, how we love God through our word and deed. He, this is connection that Paul makes, right? And I want to talk about the connection of what it means to be, uh, how, how living a life of love for God and others is a sweet aroma to God. And so what he says here is, if you want to love others like Jesus loves you, that's the point of this, then, then really the Christian has to strive to live a life that is a sweet aroma to our Father in heaven, to our God. And I'll reread Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. Follow God's example, therefore as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So in Scripture, what we see here is that it is very clear that God loves it. He absolutely loves it when his people, that's you and I, live in such a way that we are a pleasant or a sweet aroma to him. And there is literally a theology in the Bible of how we smell to God. And it begins, its, its origins begin in the Old Testament sacrificial system. It is there that God's people, uh, if, you, if you are a student of the Old Testament, you'll remember that whole sacrificial system. And there are many sacrifices that we offer to God, but one of the most common was what we would call this, this idea of a burnt offering. Offerings were given to God for the forgiveness of sin. We're clearly having a little feedback issue here, so work with me on this, all right? Uh, the symbolism of the burnt offering was that when the sacrifice was made, uh, it wasn't the sacrifice itself that, that brought about the forgiveness of sin. It was the posture of the heart when it was brought to God. So what's happening here is when somebody understood who God was, when they believed in his promise of forgiveness, and they offered these sacrifices with a genuine heart, that smoke symbolically ascends into heaven, and it offers a pleasant smell to God. It is the smell of repentance and forgiveness. And so this sacrificial love that, Jesus, that displayed through this offering, it deeply, deeply, deeply pleases God. A whole covenant of people are defined under it. But we are no longer, as you know, defined by Old Testament sacrifices. We now have a new covenant. A covenant. And it's here in these verses that Paul uses the, the same sacrificial language to describe how God loves it when we sacrificially love others in the name of Jesus. He says that's the new burnt offering. It carries the same pleasant aroma to our Father in heaven when we live like Jesus. And I'll share with you a verse in 2 Corinthians 2, 14-15. Here we read this. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession, and uses us to spread the aroma of knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you know today that we no longer need to go to a hand You guys want to go get a cup of coffee or something? No. <laughs> okay, I'll keep going here. Maybe it'll clear up. Uh, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that in this, in this verse, so this, this idea here, there is actually no need for us to offer new sacrifices to God. Because Jesus kind of, he doesn't kind of, he makes the one sacrifice that covers all of these offerings. So what we're talking about here is we, we live our life in light of the greatest sacrifice ever known. Jesus gives himself up for us. It is a pleasant aroma to God. And then us giving ourselves up for other people creates a, a, a very similar uh, aroma. And so in verse 2, God's saying that Jesus going to the cross, this is in Ephesians now, Jesus going to the cross is a fragrant offering. It's a very sweet smell to him. And this sweet smell begs an interesting question because we're using incredibly beautiful and rich language, right, poetic language, to describe one of the most horrific events in human history. If we had a child who, who died in such a fashion, 
None of us would necessarily equate these types of terms to that kind of death. So we have to ask a question. How is it that God can call the death of his son a fragrant aroma? Well, this teaching, these passages we've been looking at, they give us an answer to this question. We can be confident that God was not, you know, in the traditional sense, sadistically happy about seeing his son suffer on the cross. We know there was a great grief that took place. You know, the foundations of the earth shook at that moment when Jesus died for us. Rather, what's happening is, is that uh, God looks down upon his son and he takes great joy in the sacrifice that Jesus makes, but also the hard attitudes that Jesus makes in the sacrifice. You see, inherent in Jesus' sacrifice, are uh, there's a lot of things inherent in it. But there are two great characteristics of love that stem from God and prove that he loves us. They serve as a motivation for why we need to love other people. And so these two foundational love attitudes must be present in your life if you want to be a sweet aroma to God. This is the way we begin to, to validate whether or not we are a pleasant aroma to our Father in heaven. And so for the majority of this love teaching, rooted in Philippians chapter 2, we've talked about this from the more comfortable angle of how God actually loves us. Thank you, I'll keep this here just in case. We talked about this from the angle of how God loves us. That's a very comfortable conversation, right? I mean, let's be honest. Uh, this is the side of the gospel. We, the parallel here, the spiritual parallel, is that if you are to survey the greats in the scripture, the servants of God in the Bible, and the ones in your own life, if you've been a believer for a while, if you were to look at their lives, one of the things that makes them great is not necessarily even what they're doing, but it's that they begin to embrace the same sense of urgency that Jesus has for them. There's a healthy, not a, a manipulative or a guilt kind of laden urgency, but a healthy Jesus-centered sense of urgency when it comes to doing the work of God. Something changes. It's not just whether it's in this place serving in the kids' ministry or lugging around speakers, or being on hospitality or connections, or whether it's outside of your pla uh, this place, as you're loving your neighbor, caring for people in your home, uh, helping others know who Jesus is, something changes behind these being things we have to do to them being things that actually matter. It goes from the stitch to the gunshot wound. There are, uh, there are things that happen now that help us to see what we do is really significant. Sacrificial way we live brings love and life and hope to people in this life, and it shapes an eternity forever. They start to believe that their main purpose in life is to love God and his causes above all else by helping others to experience the grace of his son Jesus. Living for others like this, this idea of, of recognizing that in life and death, I live for the glory of God to make him the most weightiest, uh, weighty and significant person in our lives. Living like this is one of the foundational things Jesus shows us. And it lays the foundation for the second heart attitude that Jesus displays on the cross. His desire to honor God in all areas of life makes what he does next possible. And the same is true for us. So he sacrifices in life and death for God. And now we qualify the nature of his sacrifice. Second attitude we see on the cross is this. Every great sacrifice Jesus made for us in life and death was done with a totally voluntary spirit. So there is no begrudging nature here. There is certainly the wrestling. Uh, you see this in the garden, right? There is a tension in Jesus of knowing what's about to happen, but it's not a tension about not doing it. It's the tension about uh, wrestling with the emotional reality of what it means to go to the cross. But at the end of the day, when we read Jesus' words, before that moment in Scripture happens, we learn that the decision to go to the cross was nobody, nobody but his own. Nobody told him to do that. It is his Father's will, and it is his volitional desire to do it, to obey it. John 10, 18, Jesus tells us this. Now think about this. 
before the cross and the implication it has after the cross. There's no one, no one takes my life from me. This is one of those cryptic premonitions where the world will look and see people taking the life of Jesus. But he's reminding us that nobody's going to do this for me. I'm going to lay it down on my own accord. They do this because they have the permission for me to do this. And he goes on to say, I have authority, not only to lay my life down, but to take it up again. So he's saying, I have the, the authority to die for you and then to resurrect for you. And then he connects to the, 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 the authority that defines all authority. This command I received from my father. So he bridges the gap. My father and I are one. And what we're doing, we're doing. Uh, and obviously what the Holy Spirit is doing now in continuation of that, what he's saying is, is we're doing this not because we have to, but because we want to. That's pretty profound. In that verse, and with increasing intensity, as Jesus gets closer to the cross, he makes it very clear to us. His death only happens because he's choosing to make it happen. He tells us God himself and he, they, they have, in whatever way they have done this, before time was even time as we know it, they knew this was going to happen. And they did not have to go to the cross for us but they did that. So think about this. Jesus was not bound to go to the cross for us. He could have left. He could have called it a day and took the easy road of personal comfort and convenience. But he was bound by love for his Father and love for us to do something very different. He sacrificially takes the hard road, the high road of voluntary heart-deep sacrifice. He loves us when we choose to reject his love. Here is why knowing this matters. If I were to say to you Jesus was obliged to die for you, that would matter, but it would probably not matter as somebody who willingly lays down his life for you. The greatest evidence of a friend, Jesus tells us, is one who lays down his life for another. Jesus' actions, they show us there is nothing that you and I can ever do that can cause uh, God to stop loving us. We can displease God. We can cause him great grief. But the nature of his love is not transactional. It is covenantal. It is given to us even when we do not reciprocate it. His death for us on the cross, when we receive that and believe that, shows us that he has already chosen to take the worst we could ever do to him. He got, on, he got in front of that, and he used it as an opportunity to prove his love for us. He doesn't say, sin is bad, and I'm out of this. He says, sin is bad, but I'm going to show you once again that, I'm, I, that I love you. I'm going to prove my love for you by saying this is so bad, I'm going to take another step of grace by dying for you. The cross shows us Jesus' willingness to sacrifice himself for others, the whole point of this, it was a sweet aroma to God. God did not look down, and he was certainly not happy about that, but it was pleasing to him that Jesus would live his life for the benefit of another person, for us. And there is a strong connection we need to point out here. We cannot meditate on the theological reality of the gospel, the way Jesus has sacrificially lived for us. We cannot meditate on that, genuinely meditate on it, without it beginning to radically reshape and reorient our lives in the way we love others. If that is happening, there is some cosmic disconnect between what we know about God and how we actually are shaped by who God is. This type of love brought great, brought great pleasure to God. And in a very real way, it brings a similar joy and satisfaction to God when we live like this for others. It's a mind-blower to me, frankly. In the same way, like when I look at my children or your children or people you deeply care about, it's like, I remember when my, my son hit his first baseball, that made me super, super happy, in large part because I was his coach, and I was like, I wanted to take the credit for that. But at the end of the day, he was the one who hit the baseball. That, to this moment, brings joy in my heart, right? Or when I see my children um, do something amazing, or they, they articulate something clearly, or I'm thinking down the road, when they're in their 20s and 30s and they get a good job, 
these things as a parent, as a father, they deeply please me, right? My love for them is not dependent on those things, but it deeply pleases me. In the same way, uh, to get us away from the whole works thing, what we do for God is not necessarily what pleases him, because you know we can't earn his love. But the way we carry ourselves when it's a genuine sacrifice, that really does please God, because we're pressing into the nature of who he is, and we recognize that what we do, we do not because we have to, but because there is gra- it's an evidence of God's grace in our life. So before we move on, I want to ask you again, when it comes to loving others sacrificially, is your life a sweet aroma to God like Jesus is? You know, what, on a scale from 1 to 10, what, what is the aroma factor? Think about your life and the way you live it. How does God smell you? Now, that's pretty pointed, but it's literally what we're talking about here, what the Bible teaches us. What I would say is, if you're pretty low on that sacrificial scale, you have to know that perhaps the greatest tragedy in this is that you are missing out. And in the days that I don't do it, I am missing out on showing others, experiencing and showing others one of the greatest joys in life that God says you can experience. Remember, this is a book about joy, not duty and obligation. And so what he's saying here is, look, it's kind of like you're lost. When you don't press into the reality of Jesus and live like him, you do not experience the joy, the fellowship of suffering, Paul will tell us about, what it means to tap into that grace in a way that only can be tapped into when you press into the rhythms of God. The true loss is on us. So how do you know if your life is a sweet aroma to God? This is where we'll transition and kind of wrap up this morning. We're talking about the idea of the aroma. We give a clear example of Jesus and how he exemplifies the aroma. The diagnostic portion of this talk really says, we got to walk out of here with, with this question that says, how do I know that I'm a sweet aroma to God? And this leads me to the second truth that I want to share with you today. The sign that your life has become a sweet aroma to God is when you naturally, not perfectly, not completely, we are not Jesus. We don't nail this 100%. But I would say it is when there is a natural and growing desire to serve others like Jesus has served you. And I want to read Ephesians 5, 1 through 2 again. And hopefully there's a greater clarity in this. Follow. Paul says, follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children. How do we follow? We walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Our lives are directly connected to the death of Jesus. It's a different kind of sacrifice, but it has the same emphasis. So for the remainder of our time, I want to challenge you to think about putting some sacrificial living steps in play in your own life. Restoration, we call these rhythms, because it's, a rhythm is something that you're constantly moving to, right? A life rhythm is something that is not something we do on occasion. It, it, it essentially creates a music that causes our soul to dance. So if you want to live for others like Jesus lives for you, and my genuine hope is that you all do, then there are three essential things that we have got to do. They are submission points. And I hope that each one of you will wrestle with these as we move through them. Each one of us requires to submit something first to God. Because remember, love first is, is for God, right? You, you can't be something for somebody else if you're, not, if you're not this for the Lord. And you're not being fueled by the Lord. So submission begins with Him. But then it has an application to others. And submission, there was a whole talk on this a few weeks ago. I won't belabor this this morning. It is a great sign. When we get to the place where we say, No, Father, you first like Jesus did in the garden, that's a great sign that we are learning to love God above all else. He is our first and greatest. We are living for his glory. Over the past month, we've talked a lot about what it looks like to love others. Now we talk about three rhythms that practically show us how to love others. 
what we're about to discuss greatly increases the chance that you are a sweet aroma to God in your life. First submission point. If you want to love others like Jesus loves you, then you have got to submit your time to God and make space for relationships. I want to say that again. If you want to love others like Jesus loves you, you must submit your time to God and make space for relationships. Now, we have talked a lot about relationships in this series. We have whole teachings on just about every kind of relationship under heaven throughout the course of our preaching ministry here. And the one uh, truth that, that does not escape every one of those teachings is this. Meaningful relationships in life, they do not just happen. You don't just accidentally get married. You, you, I mean, at least maybe in Vegas, but that's not the way it should happen like, like normally, right? There's kind of a healthy pedigree that leads up to that, right? Um, there's, this, there's this place where we recognize, like, uh, I don't get to raise my son or my daughters absent from them for 30 years and then expect, like, when they're 35, that it's going to be a great relationship with dad. We'll have some kind of relationship, but probably not a great one. So we have qualified relationship in this room under the idea of meaningful relationships. And that's what we're talking about here. No meaningful relationship in life just happens. You have to be intentional about them. And oftentimes they require us to slow down and make space for people in our lives. We did a whole series on time, you might remember, right? The battle cry of our modern Western culture is I got no time. I shared in that series, like, we used to say, how are you doing? And people would say, oh, I'm okay. That was like the pat answer. Now the answer is, well, I'm busy. And oftentimes the word busy is not even necessarily productive. It's just busy. So not having time is without question the number one reason that most people cite for not making it a priority to have relationships in their life, to love others. But I'm telling you today, if you are a person, I don't know where you are in your life right now. Some of you I do. But if you are in here and you are in Jesus, you have professed a love for him. What I'm telling you is that you cannot be a person who claims to love Jesus and, and you cannot be a Christian in good conscience and have this time inconsistency in your life. You can certainly live this way, but you cannot in good Christian conscience live this way. Now, maybe you're saying that's a pretty strong statement. H- how can this be? Why? Well, I want to answer that. Here's why. Because we don't start with the question, how do I give my time to other people? We don't start with what we do for others. We start with what God has done for us. Here's why. You and I serve a God who never, ever tells us that he doesn't have time for us. Ever. In fact, it's quite the opposite. If we were to be very honest about God's availability to us and our availability to him, God always makes more time to be available to us than we often want to be with him. He wants to, and the nature of our creation and the cross and the two covenants show us God wants to be in relationship with us. So remember, you are a Christian. I am a Christian in large part because God made time for me. God made time for you. Because of his love for you, he said, I'm going to be the available father. I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to give you my word. I'm going to let you communicate to me through prayer. I'm going to give you this thing called the church so you have other people to talk to you about the struggles of life so you can wrestle with my mission, not in isolation, but in genuine community with myself, my son, my spirit, and my people. If you look around, God has done nothing but make time for us. That is why it is so important that for those of us that claim to love God, we don't ever say, I don't have time for people. And I'm telling you, when when I say people, that is every single person in your life right now. I want to qualify what I mean by that. You probably don't have the time to be present and available emotionally and relationally like God does for the world. That's not what I'm saying here. But what I am saying is, 
God has specific purposes for you and your relationship. And so if you are not in meaningful relationship, or you don't have fresh, I'm not talking about something that happened seven years ago, fresh stories in your mind and on your heart about the way you have sacrificed for another, then you've got to ask God for the wisdom and the desire to make space in your life for other people. You've got to see this as a challenge to receive grace. Ask Him why this is not the case and to show you who He wants you to spend time with like this. Now, I want to say one other thing here about time. Whenever we talk about making time for people, we have to deconstruct the Western understanding of this. When we say do something, everybody automatically thinks do something else. And in a culture that almost falsely at times has constructed busyness around them to keep them from doing things that are important, we have to qualify what we mean about doing something. When I say make time, I'm not saying add something to your life. That's not the case. I mean, I guess it very well could be. But predominantly what I'm saying is there are very simple ways, easy ways, to be with people that do not require you to do anything else in your life. Thus the word intentionality. You don't necessarily have to do anything else, but you can exponentially increase your ability to have other people in your life like Jesus did. You're saying, like, this sounds like an infomercial. Is he giving away sham wows if we press into this, right? How, and, you know, if you act now, I'll give you the ultimate love formula. I'm telling you, this is no gimmick. I want you to think about this. You don't need more time. Each week, right, this is my primary rhythm. I take a lot of meetings out. Um, I mean, a lot. A half of my week after my sermon is pretty much meeting with people in our body and outside of it. So I've realized, like, i got to make space at the table for people, at the, the literal lunch or supper table. Every one of us eats roughly 21 meals a week, right, three of us, three, three meals a day. And what I will tell you is that rather than thinking about how to make time for people, if you would just talk to your wife or your family or your friends or your roommate and you say, you know what, what if we took just one of those suppers, one of those lunches, and we made space for somebody else, somebody we know that loves God or somebody that doesn't love God, if we just said we're going to take one of the 21 meals a week, you would automatically create 52 times a year that you would be intentionally loving people. I don't, I don't know, I'm not a mathematician, I'm more on the sociology, philosophy side of life, but 1 to 52 is exponential growth, right? Exponential. So just by saying, come eat supper with me, or let's go get lunch together, once a week, 52 times of the year, you are blessing people. And I'm telling you, God will get up in the mix with that stuff. So please don't overcomplicate this. Uh, I guess that's what I'm saying. Um, don't try to make this a bigger issue than it is. This is just a thing you start doing. And the reason you start doing it is because you have never and will never in your life say, Father, and him say, uh, not now, not today. That will never happen. And so we've got to, you know, within reason, because we're human, we've got to figure out if, our, if we're stiff-arming people in life because we don't have time, we've got to ask why that is the case. Jesus, and we should not want to do it to others. Commit your time to God. Secondly, if you want to love others like Jesus has loved you, loves you, you must submit your patience to God. Uh, this is a hard one for a lot of us. I know for me too. Um, you know, we live in a modern, processed, fast food culture. Uh, I say this, just think about shopping. Like, I, uh, granted, as I grow in Jesus, he's helped me with my patience, but I am a very impatient person. I can be. Um, that's part of the thing they look for planners, in planners. They want folks that really want to make change. But, like, being an orzo, part of what it means to be an orzo means you are just impatient. Like, my dad is in his 70s now, and, like, I've seen forms of impatience in him uh, that I never knew existed in another human. He can get snappy and quick about anything. And so, uh, obviously, my, my parents are not believers. I've mentioned this. But this, this impatience thing is huge. And so many of us naturally just struggle with it. But we also live in a culture. We live in an Amazon Prime culture where we think we can get the cheapest price, right? 
uh, on, a, on an item and have it at our door in two days. And if we're really, really, really antsy, we can pay an extra $3 and have it here tomorrow, right? That's the world we live in. We hear commercials about, like these fast food places, Burger King saying like, hey, how do you want to eat? I'll tell you how. Your way, right away, the way you want it all the time. That's the way we understand relationship in our world. But what I'm telling you is that real relationship, like if it moves beyond contract, here's 99 cents, give me a whopper. Um, if you move into substantial relationship, it's going to be quite the contrary. I'm not saying God cannot work in speedy ways, but the normal narrative of God is not speed. It is this kind of gradual, residual, perpetual change. He's working at his, his causes over millennia. Uh, we read in the New Testament, when the time was right, God sent Jesus to the world. He sees life not in minutes and seconds, but in seasons and eras. And this is how we have to understand relationship. If you want to love others like Jesus did by helping them to know God, then you, you have to know that you, you have to have a different timeline for people than, than you have to embrace God's timeline for people than the one you might have in your own mind. And here's what I mean by this. If you have genuine people in your life who are far from God or other Christians who are just struggling or other Christians who are new in the faith, you know, we tend to get our feelings hurt when you, you meet somebody on your school campus or your workplace and, or whatever the relational dynamic is, and you, they say, oh, hey, what are you doing? You say, well, I live here. I moved here a year ago. Or I've been working here for a while. Awesome. Well, hey, uh, I just want you to know I go to a restoration church. Come on Sunday. And that's really great for you. That matters to you. But they don't, they don't they're like, what? Come to church? Uh, I, I haven't ever been in a church. Like, this is the weirdest thing ever. I thought you were going like, to say, well, how, what's my life look like? But you're inviting me to church, right? I'm not saying we shouldn't invest and invite. I'm just saying oftentimes what happen is, happens is when we make these strong investments in people, when we invite them to, uh, to, to worship or to our community groups or even things that are, that are lesser involved in this, and they say no, we, we don't know what to do because we just expect that people after two or three days of conversation are going to automatically uh, know and love and value Jesus the way we're learning to know and love value him over decades. So I want to point something out here. This is where you have to have space for people. As great and as necessary as these rhythms are in our lives, people who are very far from God are likely not going to be ready for them. So rather than doing like, this is probably the most abused evangelistic verse in the whole New Testament. If you read the Bible, you know Jesus says like, shake the sand out of your shoes for those who reject me. A lot of times what rejection has looked like in the fast-paced you know, fast food culture we live in, it's like you invite somebody to a church event and they say no, and you're like, well, I don't care. But that's not, they, they clearly do not, are ever, never going to receive Jesus. They, they, but the problem with that is like, it really violates the way God has pursued us because he made space for a lot of no's and a lot of rejections and a lot of crazy questions. So what I want to say here is we can't get frustrated with people. We can't blow people off. Many of us, literally, I share the story with you. The people that led me to Jesus in my 20s, um, I, I knew kids, they, they were 20-year-olds, they were so they were younger people. I'm like 40 now, so everything below 40 is a kid to me at this point. But I had talked to people who I knew after I had become a Christian. I asked them why they never told me about Jesus. Because to me, I was like, well, obviously I didn't know God, and I was like going to go to hell. And that really scared me at that point when I embraced that. And I asked them why, and I'm not kidding you. One girl told me they thought I was a lost cause. And I remembered hearing that and thinking like, Thank God my salvation was not up to you, right? Because, thank God, like, you are not on the throne like, lost cause. Uh, football game's on, lost cause, you know. Th that was terrible. And that, that so shook me. It was very gracious and very heartfelt, the conversation. But that rocked me at the core of my foundation. Somebody beyond that person saw me as something beyond a lost cause. 
and other people made patience in my life. And she, she was genuinely apologetic for it. And I was genuinely forgiving her. But I just thought, I don't ever want to be that with somebody else. Because God, God makes lost causes great again. So it makes great sense that we would recognize for a great many people, like it was for a great many of us, it's going to take some time for them to understand or even express any interest in the Jesus we have to de- we've come to deeply love. We have to just love people. Developing healthy, Christ-centered relationships is like cultivating a field. It's not like the Burger King drive-thru. It's like tending a field. It requires patience and discipline. It, re- it requires time. So I'd say again, remember, it took and still takes time for us to grow into the image of Jesus. And, and God is never short-tempered with us. Seldom, I should say. He knows our faults and our failures. And often as great as, as it is an expense to him to labor through these things with us. Remember, grace is free, but it costs God his son we see that God gently and faithfully leads us through these times because he desires us to grow. So in short, I would say, why should you submit your patience to God? Because he has never given up on you. He has never been impatient with you. So please remember to be patient with others. Like that first submission, if you are a person who claims to love and be loved by Jesus, you cannot in good Christian conscience have this inconsistency in your life. There's got to be a tension point that causes you to wrestle through it. You can't give thanks for God's everlasting patience in your own life while withholding it from others. So I would encourage you to not. Ask God for the strength to be a, pa- a person who's defined by the grace and the love, the everlasting patience, the 70 times 70 forgiveness, right? 70 times 7 forgiveness that we read about in the New Testament. Be patient with people. I was patient with you. Last thing, and very briefly, we submit our time to God, we submit our patience to God. If you want to love others like Jesus loves you, you must submit your life to the work of God's Holy Spirit. Um, I actually just mentioned this in our worship meeting this morning. Most neglected member of the Holy Trinity. None of this happens in our own strength. That is why when Jesus left, he said, I'm going to give you my spirit, and you will do great works, greater works in my name than I did. That's the Gospel of John, because my spirit is with you. So remember... You cannot love others like Jesus loves you without him. When we talk through Nehemiah, we cannot build God's kingdom without the king. So press into the power of the Holy Spirit to help you become what you have yet to be in God. That's the phrase we like to use here. 